Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Sat on a tree Down a down Hey down a down They were as black As they might be With a down One of them Said to his mate Where shall we Our breakfast take With a down Dairy 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 down Down Hello and welcome to the second listener episode of the Three Ravens podcast. Huzzah! I'm Eleanor Conlon and I'm breaking the wax seals of many wonderful letters filled with stories and reading over my shoulder is my co-host Martin Vaux. Hello! We are really thrilled to be able to release our second listener episode and it's all thanks to you, the Three Ravens community. Yes, we've had some wonderful stories shared by listeners which we thoroughly enjoyed reading and we hope that you'll enjoy hearing. And it's worth saying that we've had so many listener stories this time that we haven't actually been able to include them all in this episode. So we've got the beginnings of the next one too. So thank you all so much. Yeah, so they were all sent to us either via email to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com or shared on our social media feeds. So if you have a favourite folktale or piece of local lore that you would like to hear on a future listener episode, please do send it through to those same places. Or you can share them on social media via facebook.com forward slash three ravens podcast, Instagram at three ravens podcast or Twitter or X at three ravens pod. Now, if you've been enjoying the podcast and would like bonus content, including exclusive episodes, the monthly Three Ravens newsletter with magical spells, tarot spreads, folk traditions, text versions of the stories, and of course, all of our episodes completely ad-free, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash 
Ravens podcast. Now on to our stories for today. We have quite the variety and another poem to finish off. Oh, lovely. These have all been sent since our previous listener episode. So, should we get stuck in? Yes. So our first story is from Robert, who shared a story with a very useful recipe for removing the evil eye. The story is taken from an old religious text from about 1,500 years ago. It warns against women who are, for want of a better term, busybodies around their neighbourhoods. It goes on to name one as an example, but totally fails to elaborate. A commentator from France, around a thousand years ago, also reports the story, the oral tradition being what it is. This is not the only version recorded, but this is the most famous. Also, the expense of writing it being how it was back in those days. He certainly was not verbose in how he went about it. He wrote of a woman who was known to be very righteous and was greatly needed in her neighbourhood. There was a common issue in the area with women having trouble giving birth. The babies simply were not getting the hint and leaving the womb at the appropriate juncture, causing much pain for the expectant mothers. This saintly woman would visit the poor women and when she prayed hard for them, they would finally give birth. I dare say she received quite a few gifts for her efforts. Now, one day, this angelic woman was out on a visit to a similarly distressed mother-to-be and had a labourer in and around her house. While doing his work, the labourer heard a noise from a back room as if a baby was crying out. Investigating, he found that the noise was coming from a small jar. He could only think to break the jar and see what was inside that seemed so distressed. Yet, when he did, there was nothing to be found, though the noise did stop. Coincidentally, at that very moment, even before our wonderful heroine had managed to utter the slightest prayer, a mother gave birth. Now, the story got around and the townsfolk put two and two together and realised that the woman must be a witch. She had been cursing the women, then lifting the curse to appear as if her prayers were the cure. Anyway, there's no elaboration of what was then the witch's fate, but quite an interesting story. Wow, I do love an opportunistic career witch, but (laughs) pretending to be saintly and praying for the curse that she herself had caused to be removed is something else. Mm. (laughs) Robert also shared a wonderful Middle Eastern tradition for removing the evil eye, which is something we'll probably all need at some point or other in our lives. All you need to do is melt two lead balls in oil, one ball for a man and one for a woman, since you don't know who's put the evil eye on you. I see. Then you stir it and revolve the spoon around the cursee's head while saying a prayer, then drop the molten lead liquid into water mixed with salt and lemon. A small explosion will then be heard and that will destroy the curse. But that's not all of it. You then need to take the solidified lead and tread on it before throwing it out of the house. (laughs) Now, Robert also sent us the link to a video of this actually being done, which we will share on our social media. It's in Hebrew, but for non-Hebrew speakers, it's pretty clear what is going on. Yes, and as far as I can tell, this video was taken reasonably recently. Okay. So this is still going on today. That's absolutely fantastic, and I love it. (laughs) Super interesting. Yeah. We also heard from Sabrina, who was inspired by our film club watch of an American werewolf in London, to tell us all about the Furla, or the werewolves of Ireland. 
Sabrina told us that the Irish werewolf is different from your standard European werewolf as it isn't really considered a monster at all. Unlike its continental hairy cousins, the Fela are shapeshifters who are guardians and protectors of children, really? wounded men and lost people. Oh, that's so interesting. According to some ancient sources, the Irish werewolves were even recruited by kings in times of war. Well, as you would. Isn't that yeah. amazing? Yeah. Army of werewolves. However, they do exhibit some predatory behaviour quite similar to the common wolf and are said to enjoy the occasional nocturnal raid. Now, Eleanor is positively vibrating with happiness of this story. She loves a heartwarming tale of any kind of wolf, really. I certainly do, especially a kind-hearted wolf that protects <laughs> wounded people and children. <laughs> so, so thank you to Sabrina for that. And if the Three Ravens podcast ever makes it to Ireland, I can sense some tales of the fairless slipping their way into our storybooks. I would absolutely love for us to be able to do something about the different regions of Ireland or different districts of Ireland. But my goodness, if you think about the number of pronunciations we've got wrong in just doing the English counties. Yes, I think we're going to have to rely quite heavily on pronunciation videos. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> on the other hand, I love being corrected. Yeah. I don't mean that sarcastically. I, I'm genuinely amused by how wrong we can really get some of the English pronunciations. Yes, we are really good at getting it wrong. Luckily, our listeners can advise us on this one. Actually, we've got another Irish tale coming up on this episode yeah. a bit later Ooh, on. So it's a, a kind of Irish rich listener episode fun, this time. Fun, fun. So... Our lovely listener, Sam, whose tale of Badbury Clump featured on our previous listener episode, has also been back in touch and has shared some great pictures of various visits. Sam went to Ruthin Castle in North Wales with her family and told us about the grey lady who supposedly haunts the castle. However, Sam thinks her teenage son may have scared off the ghost with his loud footsteps. That's brilliant. <laughs> and actually a great idea for not being haunted. Scare yeah. off the ghost instead. <laughs> it's very true. Now, Sam and family also visited the Roll Wright Stones and saw the stone circles called the King's Men. And then you've got the, the King's Stone and the Whispering Knights there as well. She told us that as soon as you step into the site, it's incredibly quiet with trees hiding and silencing the road behind you. You walk into beautiful views of rolling hills which carry a heavy air of history, Sam says. Now, you can really feel, she says, that lots has happened here, which makes you feel so grounded when you're walking in and amongst the beautiful weathered stones. In terms of age, they are believed to date from around 3,800 BC. Wow. Now, the Whispering Nights are at the end of a grassy path, lined in September with beautiful autumn wildflowers and bountiful blackberries and rose hips. They are said to be one of the earliest funerary monuments in Britain, and the square burial chamber would once have contained the bones of several individuals. The piece of human bone washed out from the chamber was radiocarbon dated to 1,700. BC. Mm. Now, there are many myths and legends surrounding the Rollwright Stones, including one about a local witch, and we talked about this on our episode, but mm -hmm. uh, who overheard three knights whispering and plotting to kill the king, so turned them into stone. It's an amazing place to visit, though. All throughout the year, there are beautiful wildflowers, fungi, and celebrations to enjoy. And then in the depths of winter, particularly on a frosty morning, that view from the top of the hill 
across the nearby valleys is an absolute stunner. Oh, thank you for that great account of your visit to the Rollwright Stones, Sam. We are dying to pay them a visit ourselves, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. I haven't been for a few years. I mean, I, I haven't been at all. I grew up very near there. And first time I ever went was as a Boy Scout. Really? Yeah, we went on an expedition and, and heard about the story. Since then, it's been a, a place of high romance in my mind. Do you get a special Boy Scout badge connected to the Rollwright Stones? No, you Visited should do. to the Rollwright Stones and didn't get turned into stone by a witch badge. I feel like there should be a folklore badge as part of Cup Scouting. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. Maybe we should write to the Boy Scouts and suggest it. Yeah, maybe we can we present should. it. <laughs> <laughs> now, the next listener story was very interesting to me as it's from Bury St. Edmunds, my birthplace. Mm. Catherine wrote to us after listening to our episode on witch bottles to tell us about the Nutshell Pub in Bury St. Edmunds, which is in Suffolk. It's the smallest pub in England, and while builders were repairing part of the pub, a mummified cat fell out of a wall cavity. Oh, no! The cat was said to be cursed, and strange goings-on would happen in the pub at night. The mummified cat was then hung from the ceiling above the bar for protection. Ooh. It's also said that if you're a witch, you won't be able to enter the pub because it's being protected by the cat. Well, they're going to be losing out on business, aren't they? I would have thought so. Yeah. <laughs> now, a former bar lady wasn't scared of the mummified cat and she used to take it down and bathe it if it got too dusty, as it obviously would after time. Love it. However, the last time she did this, the tail fell off and she lost her job. Yeah, quite understandably. You should not wash a cat's tail off. That's bad. <laughs> but then a worse thing happened. A group of young military personnel who were out in the town later stole the now poor tailless cat as a prank one evening after some drinks and took it back to their base. Well, I hope there was consequences. There were. It said that there were strange goings on and a string of bad luck as a result. The kitchens reportedly caught fire Whoa. and there was talk of a plane accident also oh supposedly goodness. caused by the cat. Wow. So um, the squaddies returned the mummified cat to the nutshell, probably rather shamefacedly. It was found hanging outside the pub one morning, ready to be returned to its place above the bar where it can still be seen today and hopefully no one will be so foolish as to steal the cat again. Oh, that's such a good story. We'd love to verify it, but unfortunately, I don't think we'll be able to enter because Martin's a witch. Well, yes, and that's rather a case of pots and kettles there, Eleanor. But thank you, Catherine, <laughs> for checking that out for us. And witches, maybe maybe go down the road to the Weatherspoons instead. <laughs> <laughs> My voice at the moment is a little bit croaky, in part because we... I've been recently doing a play and the place we have been doing the play was definitely a haunted place. Yes, it was. Um, a school dating from, I guess it was Victorian. Yeah. We are doing a participatory project with some amazing young people. And the school, while being very beautiful with some incredible buildings, was decidedly haunted. And one of the fun things about it was there were two ghosts that we encountered. One was spied above the theatre on a balcony while we were performing. Oh. Looking down at us. I didn't, I didn't yeah. you didn't even tell me about that. No, while we I'm were glad on you didn't. stage. <laughs> exactly, I didn't want to freak you out. But nonetheless, um, not reported by me, seen by other people, uh, because apparently it is a haunted theatre. So that's great. That's amazing. Yeah. I had a, a different encounter. I'd, I'd been downstairs to visit a ladies' room and on the way back up, I heard steps on the stairs behind me and there was nobody down there. This was sort of seven o'clock in the evening, school was shut. Very no one behind spooky, me. Very, very spooky. spooky. And I'm sceptical. But <laughs> I definitely heard a sound on the stairs behind me. Maybe it was the expanding of wood. Who knows? So perhaps for Christmas, we should send this particular venue 
if not a witch bottle, then a mummified cat. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> now, it wasn't exactly a story, but we did have a very interesting email from Andrew after we released our episode about the Ouija a few weeks ago, which started us off on a bit of a discussion, which we'd like to hear your thoughts on as well. Now, Andrew said that he had observed some individuals conflating tarot with Ouija, perceiving them as essentially the same practice. He said that the concept of Ouija as a doorway intrigued him, and that some people he'd spoken to extended that perception to tarot, viewing it as another potential portal to negative influences. I must say, I'd never heard of the two practices being linked, although of course they have things in common. Mm. I wonder if tarot hasn't been connected to doorways to Satan in the popular imagination because there isn't an additional force who must be contacted outside the object. The cards themselves and the reader or the, the querent, if you like, are the only forces at play. What do you think, Martin? Well, I, th I think, I mean, I'm a big defender of tarot and I find it very interesting, but also I'm very interested in in old methods of prophecy because we have lots and lots and lots of early archaeological evidence about different boards and different games being used as methods of mm -hmm. telling the future or trying to forecast what's going on in a person's life or providing us a means of understanding things about ourselves that we previously weren't aware of or, or hadn't voiced. And so I feel like uh, Ouija does something different to that because it's about the community experience. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that people acknowledge about Ouija when it's studied psychologically is that nobody thinks they're pushing the planchette, but everybody is subconsciously, so they say, pushing the planchette. Yeah. So, so I think part of what makes it so uh, spooky and special is that feeling that nobody's really aware of what's going on. Nobody can really trust what's going on. So it creates a different vibe as a kind of community moment. Whereas tarot, I think, doesn't really you, you work in a group you can't really environment. It, can you? Yeah. I mean, if you've shuffled well, yeah. you, can't, you can't really uh, force it to any particular direction. No, but what I would say is that I, in you know my youth, was involved with a tarot reader, I was friends with her for a time, um, who was pushing readings um, in directions that I didn't think were very helpful. Yeah, so, so she had that. an agenda. Yes, but I mean. the cards themselves and the practice, for me, yeah. I think is morally neutral. Oh, it's, it's it doesn't compel readers yeah. towards good or bad acts and decisions, but it more sort of helps individuals clarify certain questions in their own mind. Yeah. I can imagine that some people are a bit wary of the cards representing death and the devil. Mm. And in some of the, like the Ancien Tarot de Marseille, the imagery is actually quite a alarming yeah. but but the more modern decks have have much sort of softer images for those cards also often. when we're reading tarot we're not really reaching out to forces beyond our understanding to ask for help per mm. se we're just using the images we've shuffled to create a picture which might help illuminate whatever aspect of life we've asked about you know they're kind of thinking tools aren't they really mm. but you know i guess there will always be those who fear any form of divination or prophecy yes <laughs> although a possessed deck of tarot cards is a great idea for a story well you've got to call dibs on it otherwise i'll use it <laughs> <laughs> and we had a great email from sophie who originally hails from northern ireland and she was sharing some of the folklore from the area she comes from ireland's folklore as just mentioned before is such a rich resource and 
we hope we'll be able to visit one day. Yes, indeed. Now, Sophie wrote, I come from a village you'll not have heard of, just outside a town you might have called Lurgan. Now, I've probably got the pronunciation of that wrong straight out of the gate, but there we are. Now, it stood since the plantation of Ulster, and there's much history to the place, although I must say the people aren't nearly as dour as the saying, a face like a Lurgan spade would <laughs> suggest. At its centre, towering over the town, lies Shankill Parish Church. There's been a Shankill Parish Church in the area since 1411, and the current one, with its imposing grey spot was built where it now stands in 1725. The graveyard bearing its name lies not far away and is even older still, sitting on the spot of an ancient double ring fort. Its inhabitants include the great and good of the area, such as the Brownlows. They also include the infamous, such as Marjorie McCall, a twice-buried woman. Having caught a fever, her family thought her dead, swiftly burying her for fear the illness would spread. When the grave robbers came calling for her wedding ring, they couldn't get it off, opting to hack the finger off instead. Only this roused Marjorie. <laughs> it gave the grave robbers some shock and I'm sure made them pelt off like two men and a wee lad and maybe even pack the business in altogether. When she got home though, Marjorie's husband nearly died from shock himself and they say his hair went white overnight. But both went on to live a brave many years yet and even have another child before shuffling off this mortal coil for good. Her gravestone still reads, died once, buried twice. Oh my gosh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Definitely some inspiration for a future story there. Sophie also told us about Lieutenant Henry Cuppage, perhaps the most infamously unfortunate resident of Shankill Graveyard. He was a soldier in the British Army and while serving in India was rumoured to have married an Indian princess. Despite the happiness he'd found, he longed for home and resolved to return to Ireland. Yet society would not have welcomed this foreign princess returning with him as his wife, despite her being royal and all that, and so Henry had to leave her behind. Desperate and heartbroken, the princess threw herself into the sea and was drowned, but not before placing a curse on her departing husband. The years went by, and back home, Henry felt the first flushes of love once more, this time with a young woman from Dublin, just down the Belfast-Dublin train line that passes through Lurgan to this day. He sent her a letter asking for her hand, and earnestly awaited her reply. But the first Mrs. Cuppage's curse had followed him, and the whispers reached the ears of his new beloved. As he might, upon discovering your new fella was under a curse set by his dead wife, <laughs> she broke it off with him and Henry lost a second love. Distraught, he took himself down to the train line and perched on a sleeper, waiting for the next train from Dublin. He watched as the plume of smoke from the steamer's chimney grew larger, as the vibration of the track under iron wheels grew louder as the train drew closer to Lurgan. The driver sounded a whistle to prompt the man to move, but his warning would not be heeded. At the last moment... Henry laid his neck across the track and his head was locked clean off. Blimers. They say the train was carrying a letter from the girl from Dublin saying she had a change of heart and would marry him after all. Oh no! Now Henry must have thought that act would bring him peace. Far from it. 
his restless soul still wanders to this day. Mothers in the surrounding streets tell their children that Cuppage puts his head on his walking stick to peek over the graveyard wall and make sure the Weans aren't being bold. But more often, you'll find him walking the tracks at night with his head under his arm, waiting on the mail train from Dublin. Oh, okay. Well, firstly, thank you so much, Sophie, for both of those fantastic stories. But that second one is absolutely awesome. I love this cuppage, headless ghost. I like the idea of him putting his head on a stick to scare children. Oh, it's brilliant. So So much atmosphere to that, and so much in it with the the Indian princess's curse as well. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Sophie. Great stories, both. We'll finish up today's episode with a story and poem sent in by Andy, who told us about the beaver witches. That's spelled not like the animal beaver, but B-E-L-V-O-I-R. So the beaver witches who hail from Leicestershire, the county of his birth. In 1619, there were three ladies, Joan Flower and her daughters Margaret and Philippa, who worked in Beaver Castle, which is on the border of Leicestershire and Lincolnshire. They were obviously well regarded by the Earl of Rutland as they were allowed to live there. That is, until two of the Earl's sons died under mysterious circumstances. All three ladies were dismissed and arrested for witchcraft. They were taken to Lincoln Castle to be sentenced, but Joan died en route after choking on a piece of holy bread. Hmm. Margaret and Philippa were hung from the walls of Lincoln Castle. Andy was so taken by the story of the beaver witches that he took a trip to follow in their footsteps. On the anniversary of Margaret and Philippa's deaths, he started in Botsford and drove to Ancaster to visit the church where Joan died. Apparently, if you could say the Lord's Prayer while eating and drinking holy bread and water, you could prove your innocence. But sadly, Joan couldn't and choked on that holy bread. Now, the church is on a crossroads, so I'd imagine that's maybe where she's buried. The three were made to walk all the way from Beaver to Lincoln along the Great North Road in the middle of winter. Philippa and Margaret were then locked into the cells of Lincoln Castle, which are built within the walls facing the cathedral. It's a low two-floored tower called Cobb Hall, and after sitting quietly in it and looking at the iron rings still in the walls and the ruts left by the heavy chains, Andy told us it is a soulless, dark, cold and miserable place. There's another larger tower further around the castle wall where all those who died were buried. Now, interestingly, in the village of Botsford, which is in the Vale of Beaver, is this magnificent church of St Mary. It is one of the largest village churches in England and has a very large spire that can be seen for some distance. It's also known as the Lady of the Vale. And within its walls is the tomb of Francis Manners, the sixth Earl of Rutland. The tomb is very grand and contains the bodies of the murdered sons, along with an inscription that is believed to be the only one of its like in an English church. The inscription reads, Both who died in their infancy by wicked practice and sorcery. That's so fascinating. It's also worth saying the spelling of sorcery in this instance (laughs) involves a Y and an E. (laughs) I love that Andy was able to trace the journey of the witches and also the so-called witches, Mm. I'm going to say, and also find that great inscription in Botsford Church. 
I think one of the best things about digging into local legends is finding these little points of history where you can make the connections. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm hoping that in our various trudgings about between places to explore and find them and poke through them, other listeners like Andy might be a bit inspired to go and visit some of these places mm. and wander around them and perhaps, you know, retrace some of these journeys because we always find it quite interesting well not just quite interesting i'd say quite profound when we go and have some of these experiences at the very least yeah being able to walk in the footsteps of people from the past especially when they've got these connections to pieces mm. of local legend is so amazing and in a case like this when you're talking about women who are being accused of witchcraft it opens your heart in a different way i think because very often there's a, a tragedy that's completely unconnected to the women who've been scapegoated for mm. what has allegedly mm. happened and, and and I think, you know, the fact that this is engraved in stone, perpetuating yeah. this myth. And is, it's quite likely, yeah. you know, high infant mortality rates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they probably just died. Yeah. And these poor women were sort of accused of it. But yeah, you're right. Sorcery engraved in stone forever. And he also shared this poem by John Herrick, published in 1797. So smack bang in my period. As a romanticism obsessive, this is right up my straza. And this is inspired by the legend of Black Annis, or Cat Anna, as she's also sometimes known. Now, spoiler alert, I'm going to be telling my own take on Black Annis yes. during season three. Coming up. Black Annis was said to live in a cave in the Dane Hills area and was also supposedly blue and eight children. Andy has looked for her cave, but development in the area has sadly removed all trace of it. Oh, wow. Imagine buying your... Uh and inverted commas, affordable housing and a new build and <laughs> <laughs> discovering it's on the site of Black Annis's cave. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be a bit disappointed, wouldn't you? <laughs> no, but at least, at least your housing estate would be quiet because, you know, no noise from children. Absolutely. <laughs> They could put that on the advertising. <laughs> now, the poem's called On a Cave Called Black Annis's Bower. Martin, would you like to do the honours? Yep. Okay, here we go. We're down the plain. The winding pathway falls from Glenfieldville to Leicester's ancient walls. Nature or art with imitative power far in the glen has placed Black Annis Bower. An oak, the pride of all the mossy dell, spreads his broad arms above the stony cell. And many a bush with hostile thorns arrayed forbids the secret cavern to invade. Whilst delving vales each way meander around, and violet banks with redolence abound, here, if the uncouth song of former days soil not the page with falsehood's artful lays, Black Annis held her solitary reign, the dread and wonder of the neighbouring plain. The shepherd grieved to view his waning flock and traced the firstlings to the gloomy rock. No vagrant children culled the flowerets then, for infants' blood oft stained the gory den. Not Sparta Mount, for infant tears renowned, echoed more frequently the piteous sound. Oft the gaunt maid, the frantic mother, cursed, whom Britain's wolf with savage nipple nursed, whilst Leicester's sons beheld aghast the scene, nor dared to meet the monster of the green. Tis said the soul of mortal man recoiled to view Black Annis' eye so fierce and wild. 
Vast talons, foul with human flesh there grew in place of hands, and features, livid blue, glared in her visage, while her obscene waist, warm skins of human victims, close embraced. But time, than man more certain, though more slow, at length gainst Annis drew his sable bow. The great decree, the pious shepherds blessed, and general joy, the general fear, confessed. Wow, what an awesome collection of stories, thoughts, and that fabulous poem. Yeah, lovely. Thank you very much to Robert, Sabrina, Sam, Catherine, Andrew, Sophie, and Andy for sharing your tales and thoughts. If you'd like your story or tidbit of local legend to be featured on our next listener episode, please send it into Three Ravens Podcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from you, so don't be shy. Yes. As I said earlier, we've already had a few come in, which will form the beginning of the next episode. Yeah. But we'd love some more, so do send them to us. Now, as always, please do check out our website at threeravenspodcast.com for the archive of all of our past episodes, our episode blogs, and interesting pictures and facts from all the counties we've visited so far, and to visit our shop for lots of lovely Three Ravens merchandise, including our new Season 3 stuff which will be going on there very soon yes there's a shop update coming very soon which will include the beautiful cards designed by the winners of our folklore of winter card design contest now we'll be back soon with the beginning of the third series continuing our tour of the magic and mystery of england's 39 historic counties until then while our stories have gone that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle until you're out of the woods Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo was designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men, with a down, derry, 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 down, down.